Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Marshall is a man whose father left him nothing of the rich estate he was set to inherit. Thinking that on his passing his son would never want for anything, and that at the very least his life as a diplomat would secure him his future fortune. This is not the case, listeners, and such a tale takes a unique turn when Marshall seeks the support of his cousin to provide an escape out of his financial binds, only to be bound by something more sinister in nature. Welcome, you gems, you listeners on the other end. I'm sipping on one of the best Earl Grey teas I've had in a long time, and I think it only set me back seven dollar dues. Sometimes, mates, you can find such value in the little things in life, and deliciously well-priced tea is one of those things. Mates, I bring you a tale straight from 1908, a horror fiction tale titled The Brazilian Cat, and I think you're going to enjoy it. Before we start, if you enjoy this episode, swing on by my iTunes page and leave a review. Because I want people like you listening. You know, the classy lot. And the best way to do that is to have legends like you recommend the show. Alright mates, turn off the lights, turn up the sound, and let's listen to part one of today's story. A tale that is 112 years old. Crikey. Enjoy. It is hard luck on a young fellow to have expensive tastes, great expectations, aristocratic connections but no actual money in his pocket, and no profession by which he may earn any. The fact was that my father, a good, sanguine, easygoing man, had such confidence in the wealth and benevolence of his bachelor elder brother, Lord Southerton, that he took it for granted that I, his only son, would never be called upon to earn a living for myself. He imagined that if there were not a vacancy for me on the great Southerton estates, at least there would be found some post in that diplomatic service which still remains the special preserve of our privileged classes. He died too early to realize how false his calculations had been. Neither my uncle nor the state took the slightest notice of me or showed any interest in my career. An occasional brace of pheasants or baskets of hares was all that ever reached me to remind me that I was heir to Otwell House and one of the richest estates in the country. In the meantime, I found myself a bachelor and man about town, living in a suite of apartments in Grosvenor Mansions, with no occupation save that of pigeon shooting and polo playing at Hurlingham. Month by month, I realized that it was more and more difficult to get the 249 brokers to renew my bills, or to cash any further post-obits upon unentailed property. Ruin lay right across my path, and every day I saw it nearer and more absolutely unavoidable. What made me feel my own poverty the more was that, apart from the great wealth of Lord Southerton, all my other relations were fairly well-to-do. The nearest of these were Everard King, my father's nephew, and my own first cousin, who had spent an adventurous life in Brazil, and had now returned to this country to settle down on his fortune. 
We never knew how he made his money. But he appeared to have plenty of it. For he bought the estate of Greylands near Clifton-on-the-Marsh in Suffolk. For the first year of his residence in England, he took no more notice of me than my miserly uncle. But at last one summer morning, to my very great relief and joy, I received a letter asking me to come down that very day and spend the short visit at Greylands Court. I was expecting a rather long visit to bankruptcy court at the time, and this interruption seemed almost providential. If I could only get on terms with this unknown relative of mine, I might pull through yet. For the family credit, he could not let me go entirely to the wall. I ordered my valet to pack my valise, and I set off the same evening for Krypton on the Marsh. After changing at Ipswich, deposited me at a small, deserted station lying amidst a rolling grassy country, with a sluggish and winding river curving in and out amidst the valleys, between high, silted banks which showed that we were within reach of the tide. No carriage was awaiting me. I found afterwards that my telegram had been delayed. So I hired a dog cart at the local inn. The driver, an excellent fellow, was full of my relative's praises, and I learned from him that Mr. Everon King was already a name to conjure within that part of the country. He had entertained the school children, he had thrown his grounds open to visitors, he had subscribed to charities. In short, his benevolence had been so universal that my driver could only account for it on supposition that he had parliamentary ambitions. My attention was drawn away from my driver's panegyric by the appearance of a very beautiful bird which settled on a telegraph post by the road. At first I thought it was a jay, but it was larger with a brighter plumage. The driver accounted for its presence at once by saying that it belonged to the very man whom we were about to visit. It seems that the acclimatization of foreign creatures was one of his hobbies, and that he had brought with him from Brazil a number of birds and beasts which he was endeavouring to rear in England. When once we passed the gates of Greylands Park, we had ample evidence of this taste of his. Some small spotted deer, a curious wild pig known, I believe, as a peccary, a gorgeously feathered oriole, some sort of armadillo, and a singular lumbering entoed beast like a very fat badger, were among the creatures which I observed as we drove along the winding avenue. Mr. Everin King, my unknown cousin, was standing in person upon the step of his house, for he had seen us in the distance and guessed that it was I. His appearance was very homely and benevolent, short and stout, forty-five years old perhaps, with a round, good-humoured face, burned brown with a tropical sun, and shot with a thousand wrinkles. He wore white linen clothes in true planter style, with a cigar between his lips and a large Panama hat upon the back of his head. It was such a figure as one associates with a veranda-head bungalow, and it looked curiously out of the place in front of this broad stone English mansion, with its solid wings and its palladio pillars before the doorway. My dear, he cried, glancing over his shoulder, my dear, here is our guest. Welcome, welcome to Greylands. I am delighted to make your acquaintance. Cousin Marshall and I take it as a great compliment that you should honour this sleepy little country place with your presence. Nothing could be more hearty than his manner, and he set me at ease in an instant 
but it needed all his cordiality to atone for the frigidity and even rudeness of his wife, a tall, haggard woman who came forward at his summons. She was, I believe, of Brazilian extrication, though she spoke excellent English, and I excused her manners on the score of her ignorance of our customs. She did not attempt to conceal, however, either then or afterwards, that I was no very welcome visitor at Greyland's court. Her actual words were, as a rule, courteous, but she was the possessor of a pair of particularly expressive dark eyes, and I read in them very clearly from the first that she heartily wished me back in London once more. However, my debts were too pressing and my designs upon my wealthy relative were too vital for me to allow them to be upset by the ill temper of his wife. So I disregarded her coldness and reciprocated the extreme cordiality of his welcome. No pains had been spared by him to make me comfortable. My room was a charming one. He implored me to tell him anything which could add to my happiness. It was on the tip of my tongue to inform him that a blank check would materially help towards that end. But I felt that it might be premature in the present state of our acquaintance. The dinner was excellent. As we sat together afterwards over his Havanas and coffee, which latter, he told me, was specially prepared upon his own plantation, it seemed to me that all my driver's eulogies were justified, and that I had never met a more large-hearted and hospitable man. But in spite of his cheery good nature, he was a man with a strong will and a fiery temper of his own. Of this I had an example upon the following morning. The curious aversion which Mrs. Everand King had conceived towards me was so strong that her manner at breakfast was almost offensive. But her meaning became unmistakable when her husband had quit the room. The best train in the day is 12.15, she said. But I was not thinking of going today. I answered frankly, perhaps even defiantly, for I was determined not to be driven out by this woman. Oh, if it rests with you, she said and stopped with a most insolent expression in her eyes. I am sure, I answered, that Mr. Everand King would tell me if I were outstaying my welcome. What is this? What is this? said a voice, and there he was in the room. He had overheard my last words and at a glance at our faces had told him the rest. In an instant his chubby, cheery face set into an expression of absolute ferocity. Might I trouble you to walk outside, Marshal? said he. I may mention that my own name is Marshal King. He closed the door behind me and then, for an instant, I heard him talking in a low voice of concentrated passion to his wife. This gross breach of hospitality had evidently hit upon his tenderest point. I am no eavesdropper, so I walked out onto the lawn. Presently, I heard a hurried step behind me, and there was the lady, her face pale with excitement, and her eyes red with tears. My husband has asked me to apologize to you, Mr. Marshal King, she said, standing with downcast eyes before me. Please, do not say another word, Mrs. King. Her dark eyes suddenly blazed out at me. You fool! She hissed with frantic vehemence, and turning on her heel, swept back to the house. The insult was so outrageous, so insufferable, that I could only stand staring after her in bewilderment. 
I was still there when my host joined me. He was his cheery, chubby self once more. I hope that my wife has apologized for her foolish remarks, said he. Oh, yes, yes, certainly. He put his hand through my arm and walked with me up and down the lawn. You must not take it seriously. It would grieve me inexpressibly if you curtailed your visit by one hour. The fact is, there is no reason why there should be any concealment between relatives. That my poor dear wife is incredibly jealous. She hates that anyone, male or female, should for an instant come between us. Her ideal is a desert island and an eternal titi titi that gives you the clue to her actions which are, I confess, upon this particular point, not very far removed from mania. Tell me that you will think no more of it. No, no, certainly not. Then light this cigar and come round with me and see my little menagerie. The whole afternoon was occupied by this inspection, which included all the birds, beasts, and even reptiles which he had imported. Some were free, some in cages, a few actually in the house. He spoke with enthusiasm of his successes and his failures, his births and his deaths, and he would cry out in his delight, like a schoolboy, when, as we walked, some gaudy bird would flutter up from the grass, or some curious beast slink into cover. Finally, he led me down a corridor which extended from one wing of the house. At the end of this, there was a heavy door with a sliding shutter in it, and beside it, there projected from the wall an iron handle, attached to a wheel and a drum. A line of stout bars extended across the passage. I am about to show you the jewel of my collection. There is only one other specimen in Europe. Now that the Rotterdam Club is dead, it is a Brazilian cat. But how does that differ from any other cat? You will soon see that, <laughs> said he, laughing. Will you kindly draw the shutter and look through? I did so, and found that I was gazing into a large empty room with stone flags and small barred windows upon the farther wall. In the center of this room, lying in the middle of a golden patch of sunlight, there was stretched a huge creature, as large as a tiger, but as black and sleek as ebony. It was simply a very enormous and very well-kept black cat, and it cuddled up and basked in that yellow pool of light exactly as a cat would do. It was so graceful, so sinewy, and so gently and smoothly diabolical. The eye could not take my eyes from the opening. Isn't he splendid? said my host, enthusiastically. Glorious! I never saw such a noble creature! Some people call it a black puma, but really, it is not a puma at all. That fellow is nearly 11 feet from tail to tip. Four years ago, he was a little ball of black fluff, with two yellow eyes staring out of it. He was sold me as a newborn cub up in the wild country. They speared her mother to death after she had killed a dozen of them. They are ferocious, then? 
the most absolutely treacherous and bloodthirsty creatures upon earth. You talk about a Brazilian cat to an upcountry Indian and see him get the jumps. They prefer humans to game. This fellow has never tasted living blood yet, but when he does, he will be a terror. At present, he won't stand anyone but me in his den. Even Baldwin, the groom, did not go near him. As to me, I am his mother and father in one. As he spoke, he suddenly, to my astonishment, opened the door and slipped in, closing it instantly behind him. At the sound of his voice, the huge, lithe creature rose, yawned and rubbed its round black head affectionately against his side, while he patted and fondled it. Now, Tommy, into your cage! The monstrous cat walked over to one side of the room and coiled itself up under a grating. Everard King came out, and taking the iron handle, which I have mentioned, he began to turn it. As he did so, the line of bars in the corridor began to pass through a slot in the wall and close up the front of this grating. So as to make an effective cage. When it was in position, he opened the door once more and invited me into the room, which was heavy with the pungent, musty smell peculiar to the great carnivora. That's how we work it, said he. We give him the run of the room for exercise, and then at night, we put him in his cage. You can let him out by turning the handle from the passage, or you can, as you have seen, coop him up in this same way. No, no, you should not do that. I had put my hand between the bars to pat the glossy, heaving flank. He pulled it back with a serious face. I assure you that he is not safe. Don't imagine that because I can take liberties with him, anyone else can. He is very exclusive in his friends. Aren't you, Tommy? Ah, he hears his lunch coming to him. Don't you, boy? A step sounded in the stone-flagged passage, and the creature had sprung to his feet and was pacing up and down the narrow cage, his yellow eyes gleaming, and his scarlet tongue rippling and quivering over the white line of his jagged teeth. A groom entered with a coarse joint upon a tray and thrust it through the bars to him. He pounced lightly upon it, carried it off to the corner, and there, holding it between his paws, tore and wrenched at it, raising his bloody muzzle every now and then to look at us. It was a malignant and yet fascinating sight. You can't wonder that I am fond of him, can you? Said my host as we left the room. Especially when you consider that I have had the rearing of him. It was no joke bringing him over from the center of South America, but here he is, safe and sound, and as I have said, far the most perfect specimen in Europe. The people at the zoo are dying to have him. But I really can't part with him. How I think that I have inflicted my hobby upon you long enough. So we cannot do better than follow Tommy's example and go to our lunch. <laughs>
my South American relative was so engrossed by his grounds and their curious occupants that I hardly gave him credit at first for having any interest outside them. That he had some and pressing ones was soon borne in upon me by the number of telegrams which he received. They arrived at all hours and were always opened by him with the utmost eagerness and anxiety upon his face. Sometimes I imagine that it must be the turf and sometimes the stock exchange, but certainly he had some very urgent business going forward which was not transacted upon the downs of Suffolk. During the six days of my visit, he had never fewer than three or four telegrams a day, and sometimes as many as seven or eight. I occupied these six days so well that by the end of them, I had succeeded in getting upon the most cordial terms with my cousin every night we had sat up late in the billiard room, he telling me the most extraordinary stories of his adventures in America, stories so desperate and reckless that I could hardly associate them with the brown, little chubby man before me. In return, I ventured upon some of my own reminiscences of London life, which interested him so much that he vowed he would come up to Groves of Nor Mansions and stay with me. He was anxious to see the faster side of city life, and certainly, though I say it, he could not have chosen a more competent guide. It was not until the last day of my visit that I ventured to approach that which was on my mind. I told him frankly about my pecuniary difficulties and my impending ruin, and I asked his advice. Though I hoped for something more solid, he listened attentively, puffing hard at his cigar. But surely, said he, you are the heir of our relative, Lord Southerton. I have every reason to believe so, but he would never make me any allowance. No, no, I have heard of his miserly ways. My poor Marshal, your position has been a very hard one. By the way, have you heard of any news of Lord Southerton's health lately? He has always been in a critical condition ever since my childhood. Exactly. A creaking hinge, if ever there was one. Your inheritance may be a long way off. Dear me, how awkwardly situated you are. I had some hopes, sir, that you, knowing all the facts, might be inclined to advance. Don't say another word, my dear boy, he cried with the utmost cordiality. We shall talk it over tonight, and I give you my word that whatever is in my power shall be done. I was not sorry that my visit was drawing to a close, for it is unpleasant to feel that there is one person in the house who eagerly desires your departure. Mrs. King's sallow face and forbidding eyes had become more and more hateful to me. She was no longer actively rude. Her fear of her husband prevented her, but she pushed her insane jealousy to the extent of ignoring me, never addressing me, and in every way making my stay at Greylands as uncomfortable as she could. So offensive was her manner during that last day that I should certainly have left had it not been for that interview with my host in the evening which would, I hoped, retrieved my broken fortunes. It was very late when it occurred, 
for my relative, who had been receiving even more telegrams than usual during that day, went off to his study after dinner, and only emerged when the household had retired to bed. I heard him go round locking the doors as his custom was of at night, and finally he joined me in the billiard room. His stout figure was wrapped in a dressing gown, and he wore a pair of red Turkish slippers without any heels. Settling down into an armchair, he brewed himself a glass of grog in which I could not help noticing that the whiskey considerably predominated over the water. My word, what a night! It was, indeed. The wind was howling and screaming round the house, and the latticed windows rattled and shook as if they were coming in. The glow of the yellow lamps and the flavour of our cigars seemed the brighter and more fragrant for the contrast. Now, my boy, we have the house and the night to ourselves. Let me have an idea of how your affairs stand, and I will see what can be done to set them in order. I wish to hear every detail. Thus encouraged, I entered into a long exposition, in which all my tradesmen and creditors, from my landlord to my valet, figured in turn. I had notes in my pocketbook, and I marshaled my facts and gave, I flatter myself, a very business-like statement of my own unbusiness-like ways and a lamentable position. I was depressed, however, to notice that my companion's eyes were vacant, and his attention elsewhere. When he did occasionally throw out a remark, it was so entirely perfunctory and pointless that I was sure he had not in the least followed my remarks. Every now and then he roused himself and put on some show of interest, asking me to repeat or to explain more fully. But it was always to sink once more into the same brown study. At last he rose and threw the end of his cigar into the grate. I'll tell you what, my boy. I never had a head for figures, so you will excuse me. You must jot it all down upon paper and let me have a note of the amount. I'll understand it when I see it in black and white. The proposal was encouraging. I promised to do so. And now it's time we were in bed. By Jove, there's one o'clock striking in the hall. The tinging of the chiming clock broke through the deep roar of the gale. The wind was sweeping past with the rush of a great river. I must see my cat before I go to bed, said my host. A high wind excites him. Will you come? Certainly, said I. Then tread softly and don't speak, for everyone is asleep. We passed quietly down the lamp-lit Persian rugged hall and through the door at the farther end. All was dark in the stone corridor, but a stable lantern hung on a hook and my host took it down and lit it. There was no grating visible in the passage, so I knew that the beast was in its cage. Come in, said my relative and opened the door. A deep growling as we entered showed that the storm had really excited the creature. In the flickering light of the lantern, we saw it, a huge black mass coiled in the corner of its den and throwing a squat, uncouth shadow upon the whitewashed wall. Its tail switched angrily among the straw. Poor Tommy is not in the best of tempers, said Everend King, 
holding up the lantern and looking in at him. What a black devil he looks, doesn't he? I must give him a little supper to put him in a better humor. Would you mind holding the lantern for a moment? I took it from his hand and he stepped to the door. His larder is just outside here. You will excuse me for an instant, won't you? He passed out and the door shut with a sharp metallic click behind him. That hard, crisp sound made my heart stand still. A sudden wave of terror passed over me. A vague perception of some monstrous treachery turned me cold. I sprang to the door, but there was no handle upon the inner side. Here! I cried. Let me out! All right, don't make a row, said my host from the passage. You've got the light, all right? Yes, but I don't care about being locked in alone like this. Don't you? <laughs> I heard his hearty, chuckling laugh. You won't be alone long. Let me out, sir. I repeated angrily. I tell you, I don't allow practical jokes of this sort. Practical is the word. <laughs> Said he with another hateful chuckle. And then suddenly... I heard, amidst the roar of the storm, the creak and whine of the winch handle turning, and the rattle of the grating as it passed through the slot. Great God, he was letting loose the Brazilian cat. In the light of the lantern, I saw the bars sliding slowly before me. Already there was an opening a foot wide at the farther end. With a scream, I seized the last bar with my hands and pulled with the strength of a madman. I was a madman with rage and horror. For a minute or more, I held the thing motionless. I knew that he was straining with all his force upon the handle and that the leverage was sure to overcome me. I gave inch by inch, my feet sliding along the stones, and all the time I begged and prayed this inhuman monster to save me from this horrible death. I conjured him by his kinship. I reminded him that I was his guest. I begged to know what harm I had ever done to him. His only answers were the tugs and jerks upon the handle, each of which, in spite of all my struggles, pulled another bar through the opening. Clinging and clutching, I was dragged across the whole front of the cage until at last my aching wrists and lacerated fingers. I gave up the hopeless struggle. The grating clanged back as I released it, and an instant later I heard the shuffle of the Turkish slippers in the passage and the slam of the distant door. Then everything was silent. The creature had never moved during this time. He lay still in the corner and his tail had ceased switching. This apparition of a man, adhering to his bars and dragged screaming across him, had apparently filled him with amazement. I saw his great eyes staring steadily at me. I had dropped the lantern when I seized the bars, but it still burned upon the floor. And I made a movement to grasp it, with some idea that its light might protect me. But the instant I moved, the beast gave a deep and menacing growl. I stopped and stood still, quivering with fear in every limb. The cat 
if one may call so fearful a creature by so homely a name, was not more than ten feet from me. The eyes glimmered like two discs of phosphorus in the darkness. They appalled and yet fascinated me. I could not take my own eyes from them. Nature plays strange tricks with us at such moments of intensity, and those glimmering lights waxed and waned with a steady rise and fall. Sometimes they seem to be tiny points of extreme brilliancy, little electric sparks in the black obscurity. Then they would widen and widen until all that corner of the room was filled with their shifting and sinister light, and then suddenly they went out all together. The beast had closed its eyes. I do not know whether there may be any truth in the old idea of dominance of the human gaze, or whether the huge cat was simply drowsy. But the fact remains that, far from showing any symptom of attacking me, it simply rested its sleek, black head upon its huge forepaws and seemed to sleep. I stood, fearing to move lest I should rouse it into malignant life once more, but at least I was able to think clearly now that the baleful eyes were off me. Here I was, shut up for the night with this ferocious beast. My own instincts to say nothing of words of the plausible villain who laid this trap for me warned me that the animal was as savage as its master. How could I stave it off until morning? The door was hopeless, and so were the narrow, barred windows. There was no shelter anywhere in the bare, stone-flagged room. To cry for assistance was absurd. I knew that this den was an outhouse, and that the corridor which connected it with the house was at least a hundred feet long. Besides, with that gale thundering outside, my cries were not likely to be heard. I had only my own courage and my own wits to trust to. And then, with a fresh wave of horror, my eyes fell upon the lantern. The candle had burned low and was already beginning to gutter. In ten minutes it would be out. I had only ten minutes then in which to do something, for I felt that if I were once left in the dark with that fearful beast, I should be incapable of action. The very thought of it paralyzed me. I cast my despairing eyes around this chamber of death, and they rested upon one spot which seemed to promise, I will not say safety, but less immediate and imminent danger than the open floor. I have said that the cage had a top as well as a front, and this top was left standing when the front was wound through the slot in the wall. It consisted of bars at a few inches interval with stout wire netting between, and it rested upon a strong stanchion at each end. It stood now as a great barred canopy over the crouching figure in the corner. The space between this iron shelf and the roof may have been from two to three feet. If I could only get up there, squeeze in between bars and ceiling, I should have only one vulnerable side. I should be safe from below, from behind, and from each side. Only on the open face of it could I be attacked. There. It is true I had no protection whatsoever, but 
and at least I should be out of the brute's path when he began to pace about his den. He would have to come out of his way to reach me. It was now or never, for if once the lights were out, it would be impossible. With a gulp in my throat, I sprang up, seized the iron edge of the top, and swung myself panting onto it. I writhed in face downwards and found myself looking straight into the terrible eyes and yawning jaws of the cat. Its fetid breath came up into my face like the steam from some foul pot. And this is where we'll stop for now. Mates talk about Marshall being tossed from the frying pan and into the fire. Does this guy ever get a break? Well, I mean, no, is the answer, right? But look, there's always a silver lining. He's not being attacked by the Brazilian cat yet. And how the hell is he going to get out? I was thinking about how I would escape. I think I'd hide like he's doing. Then, should I hear the footsteps of my cousin checking on me, fake being dead, and then jump him and get the hell out of there? Let's see where this goes, though. I actually thought the cat was the wife for a second, the one that hates Marshall's guts, but the cat is a he, so that ruins that theory. What are your thoughts, mates? And how would you escape? Either way, I can't wait till Friday, where I can cover off part two. Now, folks, I want to thank the legends that support this podcast by donating, supporting, and showing their love to the show. If you want to be a legend, visit my Patreon page because every dollar flies back into production. New software, new audio, and new hardware as required, it all goes back into creating a better experience for the people that matter. That's you, you lovely listener. Now, first up, Maya, my unique and special Ode Night Tea Titan supporter. Mate, your tier of support is so special to the podcast that a lot of the audio remastering, de-reverbing, editing software, and overall audio experience would not be possible without your support. And I mean it. Thank you, Maya, for helping this podcast reach new heights. Your support is and will never be forgotten. Thank you so much. And next up is my white tea warlord, Lee Bauer. Thank you so much, mate, for supporting me the way you do and always putting a smile on my face with your communications. Thank you, mate, for being such a top bloke. And it's always great to hear from you. Cheers, buddy. And my little specials, the lifeblood in this podcast veins, my Earl Grey enforcers, Chad Warren, Just Heather, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boyd, Divided by Zero, Dolphin and Cow, Michelangelo Yacone, Tea Time Drinker One, and Salstra. Thank you, you legends. Every dollar we do counts, and you're helping the podcast grow every single month. Hold your Earl Grey's high my epic supporters, because you help in ways you may not realize. I'm lucky to have you lot. Stick with me Friday for this story finale, mates. And as always, till next, we meet.